Welcome to another exciting episode of the Renegade Show. And today I'm joined by a person I've admired on LinkedIn for a while now. He got introduced to me by another founder. His name is Peter. And when I did some research on him before bringing him on the pod, what I really was interested in was the his perspective around expert networks, knowledge marketplaces. And Peter calls himself an engineering leader, a founder, a technologist, and a futurist. So I'm really excited to have Peter on the pod today. Uh, welcome to the pod, Peter. Thanks for having me, Kelvin. I'm really happy to be here. Great. So for our listeners, Peter, why don't you give a little bit background from uh, when you started in this uh, technology industry? Sure. I sort of normal college experience, computer engineering major at Clemson University. From there, I went to actually the CIA out of college and worked there for three years as what they call a technical operations officer working on Commo systems. And then I had a brief stint at Raytheon, Raytheon systems prior to ending up at Cisco, the mm-hmm. internet company where I've been the last 18 years or so. So interesting and uh, you're probably the first um, speaker we've had who's worked for the agency how was how was the uh, recruitment process was it was it like what we see on the tv is it is it really strenuous in terms of getting uh, into the agency yeah i mean i, I think the process once they've decided you're going to get into the agency is where the strenuous part is I kind of took a funny roundabout way. They actually came on campus during the spring during one of our regular job fairs. And I made an appointment to go speak to the recruiter. It turned out the appointment was at like 8.15 a.m. I accidentally overslept, completely missed the appointment, thought I'd completely missed the whole thing, didn't think about it for another month or so. And then all of a sudden I got a, uh, a letter in the mail from them saying, hey, we didn't catch you on campus, but we really liked your resume. We'd like to fly you up to D.C. for a couple of interviews. So. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I, I got offered a couple of positions and it, it gets intense once they've decided, like I said, that they want to bring you on where they put you through a full lifestyle background. They interview all your neighbors. They ask them, has Peter ever done anything anti-United States? Have you ever seen Peter collaborating or conspiring with any foreign governments? Like the, the kind of stuff that freaks your neighbors out because they don't mm. tell them what, what it's, what, what's going on. They just go and start interviewing people. And your neighbors are like, what, Peter, are you okay? Like, what's going on? So it's actually pretty funny. <laughs> Interesting. And uh, so how was it like to transition from public service out of school into, into the private sector? I know Raytheon was the other place. Uh, I think they are also government linked, but how, how was that transition moving from public service to uh, private sector? It was kind of funny. So one of the people that I worked with at the CIA had ended up going over to Cisco and he was a huge influence on me in my first couple of years. And I, I really wanted to follow him over to Cisco. But unfortunately, I didn't really have any computer networking background. My background was in, in computer hardware. And what he suggested I do was go work for a company and get my experience up. And so I, my, my big plan, which at the time probably didn't seem like or seemed like a really good plan at the time, but kind of looking back on it, I'm kind of surprised it worked, was I went out and bought a book on a Cisco certification. I went and passed like a $100 test mm-hmm. and then put that onto a resume applied for a couple of jobs, ended up getting a job at Raytheon and, and ended up with like an 80% pay raise from passing like a hundred dollar like certification test. So it's pretty funny. 
Yeah. And uh, what brought you to investing? Because I, I also noticed that you're an invest, investor, angel uh, investor as well. Uh, what brought moved you into that? I think as I've, over the last several years, been getting more and more involved in the startup community and the venture capital community, I got more interested in investments and trying to figure out a way for me to do that, um, dipping my toe in the water. And so the, the way I've done that is using some of those micro-investing sites, like the, the, some of the startup sort of crowdfunded types of sites. And that's mm-hmm. really helped me learn and research startups and understand the backgrounds and the things that will make or not make one work. And it really helped me get more and more into that world. It's interesting when I looked at your portfolio, you've got a real swath of it, at least the ones you've disclosed. You've got a drone, you've got a coffee delivery, crowdfunding. When you were thinking about angel investing for all the folks listening here, a lot of them are you know, either working in a, in a, in a, in a, a full-time company or they have not been a startup. One of these ways are actually, angel investing is one of the ways to actually dip your toe into the startup. So, so talk us through how you think about all these varied companies from drone to coffee to crowdfunding, how did you have the heuristics to pick them? I think the important thing to do when you're thinking about investing in companies is to focus on areas where you either use the service a lot or you have a lot of background in that field because that will help you sift through the noise to end up on the things that actually have a decent chance of being successful. So the coffee company, I drink a lot of coffee and I understand the pain of having to go out in the middle of the day and break your day up. So I was like, that's a really good idea because it's a coffee company that goes and delivers your cafe latte or your mocha frappuccino to your place of business at 2 p.m. every day and what's going to show up because you put your order in um, and then on some of the other ones I, I you probably look at my portfolio you saw that it was technology heavy I mean I've got such a strong technology background that I use that to lean I lean on that to decide what I feel like is going to be successful or not so mm-hmm. And do you take an active role in your invest in, in your investing companies? Do you just provide funding and then you go away or do you actively help with the board? What's your, what's your involvement in these sorts of companies? The companies I've invested in, it's mostly just been I throw money at it and kind of mm-hmm. watch them closely and see how they're going to be successful. Most of the time when I take an active role in companies, it's been through helping some of the companies and advising some of the companies that I have in the Lift Labs Accelerator and some of the companies that I've met through the Philly startup leaders community in the local Philadelphia area. Yeah. And tell us about that, the One Million Cups committee member. What, what, what's that about in Philly? So One Million Cups is a something started by the Kauffman Foundation, and it was created originally out of Kansas City to have a monthly meeting where two founders can come in, have about 30 minutes where they can do their pitch, uh, go through their startup pitch deck, give an audience their elevator pitch on their big idea and how they're going to solve this big pain point, and then get feedback from the audience. I came across them as I started to get more and more involved in the Philly startup leaders community because they had a chapter local there. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a really good way for me to start meeting some new founders by participating on that committee. And, uh, and it has been. I've met several really good founders. And, and I'm now one of the two people that advises the founders each month that are going to come in and pitch. Mm-hmm. Something like a, a preparation for a Dragon's Den kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. Something like that, for sure. And, and it's, it, I mean, we've, we've pivoted to the virtual world, obviously, the last three months or so, but it's been a good experience. They can, they, they, they get a chance to practice it. They're usually in an, uh, with an audience of other founders and possibly some investors. So 
they they're in their field and and it's a place where they can be comfortable but also feel a place where people will challenge them yeah and and it's interesting because i i've i've noticed that you've been in cisco for a while now and and you're one of the engineering uh, leaders there and in the middle of a pandemic you know it, it looks as if you decided to you know boot your own startup of your own now i like to understand what most of the folks would like to kind of create a, a company in, in good times in boom times but you uh, either through luck or through timing uh, started your own startup so i'd like to understand a couple of things one what led you to this startup what was the problem you're trying to solve and then two why in in the middle of a pandemic you at least started this this new firm yeah i mean i think it's a great couple of questions when i think about the the startup is uh, it's called sage and it's a knowledge marketplace to connect people that have questions with people that have answers and the reason i started sage was i had this idea several years ago i was going through tax season and i just got started getting a new type of compensation from cisco and i didn't know how to put it into my tax return filings mm-hmm. and i went out there did a bunch of research i couldn't figure it out I tried to get a CPA appointment. Of course, it was tax season, so I couldn't get a CPA appointment. Really, all I wanted to do was get one or two simple questions answered by someone who knew what they were doing, and there was nowhere for me to go to do it. And I was like, if only there was a website I could go to to ask a CPA these two or three questions. I'd pay $40, $50, even $100 like, um, to get someone to give me a quick answer and know that it was going to be fast. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that's a really good idea. I'm... I need to put that together and build that because there's nothing out there like it. So that's that was the genesis of it. So and then to your second question, why did I decide to do it during the pandemic? Like why did I sort of hit the uh, the the key momentum to get things going? I think the answer is I travel a lot for work. I no longer travel for work because of everything that's been going on and that gave me a few extra hours during the course of the week to start working on it. And I also thinking through the idea, I felt like people in the COVID world right now really have lots of questions and they need help. And no longer do they have that social connection or social network as easily accessible to get those answers. And having that marketplace where they could just go and lean on it to, to ask questions like, hey, I'm thinking about starting to add more and more play dates and have my two, two-year-old and four-year-old play. Like, what things should I be worried about? How does my risk increase? Stuff like that that's a lot harder to Google and stuff like that that you would want more of a one-on-one type of answer back at you. To me, this is that ideal time to do it. So, mm, Interesting. And you're a new breed or actually not really a new breed, but an, an existing breed of startup entrepreneurs who haven't given up on your day job. Most of the entrepreneurs we're hearing or seeing on TV or in TechCrunch or any of those uh, those publications are usually young, usually out of school or either dropped out of school and, and, and they're getting younger by the year. Uh, and you've held a full-time job, you've risen through the ranks and you've come out to build this company. Do you feel out of place in this time and this place, at least building a company? And then how has working in a company allow you to actually build a startup? How does these two things exist? Well, I mean, I think it's interesting. I think that if you look at the startup community now, there are still those 
very youthful folks coming out of college with these big entrepreneuring ideas that, that they're going to make a lot of money, that they're going to create this amazing startup that's going to be the, become the next Facebook or Google. But there's also, as I've gotten more and more involved in the community, there's also a, a significant representation from people more like me that have been in the business world for 10, 15, 20 years that have, that they, they've seen a pain point and probably it was more of a subtle pain point and they were able to spot it because of their own experience in the business world. And that experience has allowed them to realize there might be a potential fit for some sort of solution to solve this pain point. And I, I, I think that the difference between older founders like me, I'm not going to call myself old, but older founders like me mm-hmm. is that we have a lot of that business experience. We've got a lot of those that, that, that very large professional network as well. Like you look at my network and you compare it to the network of a 23 year old. I guarantee you, I know a lot more people that are much more established that are willing to help me in the business world than a 23 year old who's really got a really up, a big uphill climb to get uh, that, that, that network that's really going to help them expand out. And so I think that helps older founders like myself kickstart things. Yeah. And uh, I think when we spoke, you're a dad, you're also a husband, you've got a family, you've got a mortgage. How do you, how do you deal with something like a startup where, you know, there's tremendous amount of time, energy, and effort that's required to go in. It's all encompassing. You hear stories of people doing 80 hour weeks. And, and so how do you manage that work-life balance? If any, is, or is there even a such thing as a work-life balance when you're having a full-time job, raising a family, paying the mortgage, and trying to get some, a vehicle lifted, lifted off the uh, escape velocity? Well, I, I think it starts with a couple of key ingredients, mm-hmm. one of which is find something you're really passionate about and mm-hmm. that you really believe in because you're going to need to get up early. You're going to need to stay up late. You're probably going to sleep a lot less. So that's a very key baseline. The mm-hmm. second one in the case of people that are married with children is find an amazing wife who is super patient <laughs> like mine is and takes a lot of the load of, of kid rearing so you can have more and more time to spend on the startup. I do my best not to take advantage of it and I try to make sure that we balance it out. But that work-life balance is, it's not really a thing. It's just like happiness and, and being mm-hmm. with the right partner and then making the, the combination of startup plus day job plus being a husband and being a father fit okay and it's you're constantly rebalancing it's one of those things where sometimes you spend too many hours on the startup and your wife starts yelling at you or sometimes you spend too you get too little sleep and all of a sudden you say something stupid in a meeting at work at your day job right so you have Mm -hmm. to constantly tweak your rest how much sleep you're getting your efforts in the different areas how much personal effort you're giving in them and then Sometimes you just need to take a little break for a couple of days and say, hey, I'm, over, I'm overwhelmed, I'm overloaded, I need to put this on hold for a second and then go focus on this. So. Yeah, and you, you mentioned something really interesting because you're juggling a couple of things. You're juggling compartmentalization, you're juggling physical energy, mental acuity, and then you're also juggling the... The, the the prevention of burnout, right? So what are the kind of techniques you use? Do you do meditation? How, how, do, you, how do you decompress, de-stress, meditate, or compartmentalize? Are there any mental hacks or tools or techniques that you found that's useful, at least for you? 
I've, I've not been very good at meditating. I've always in my mind wanted to be a really good meditator, but I just can't get the right motions going yet to do mm -hmm. that. So the way I quiet my mind is I usually just try to find some, some quiet time to be alone. And sometimes that's going for a drive to get a cup of coffee and like mm -hmm. trying to just settle everything. Sometimes it's watching a TV show. Like I think whatever allows an individual to recharge some introverts recharge very differently than extroverts bring that into your um, circle whenever you need it as much as possible so mm, interesting i'd like to come back to the the startup that you're building you 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 did an interesting uh, article on on linkedin around knowledge marketplaces and in today's world identity and and the ability to know if someone is an expert is really up for grabs the internet has kind of democratized knowledge in such a way that anyone and everyone who who has a a a podcast like myself or even a blog who can put up an article can claim to be an expert. So as you're building this experts marketplace, what are the guardrails or, or capabilities you're, you're thinking about, especially in a world where in, in, the, in the arena of fake news, there's this idea of zero trust frameworks around. What are you thinking in terms of trying to curate this knowledge marketplace? Talk us through about this thesis that you have. Well, I think it kind of depends on if you're doing it in the wide open internet or you're doing it in, in a much smaller realm of a corporate intranet. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm more focused on the former, but the same principles generally would apply to the, to the internet or the internet. And I think it is, you need to create a merit-based type of experience for the experts. And mm -hmm. you all, we always hear the term meritocracy, but in a world where everyone is an expert, everyone has an opinion, everyone thinks they're right, and, and most people are unwilling to compromise when it comes to just about anything these days. You need to create a system that will allow the greater populace to judge an expert on their merits. And that means a very strong scoring system, reputation system, a way to let supply and demand principles take over your marketplace when it comes to how much an expert can charge or how much someone is, someone's knowledge is worth, right? And doing that all and putting that together is, we're still in the early stages of that at Sage, but to me, that's the type of fit where you don't have to worry about vetting experts because people are going to vet themselves by the quality of the information they provide back really all you need to worry about is, like I said, establishing a, a strong measurement capability of an expert's ability to deliver great information and great knowledge transfer. And then the rest of it, I'm hoping, should take care of itself, I think. Yeah. Marketplaces are actually one of those tricky uh, tricky um, businesses to start. It's, uh, it's the chicken and egg, right? Do you get enough supply so that the demand will come? Do you get enough demand so that you can kind of attract the supply? And it's fraught with uh, the grace of a lot of folks that came before where they use either some paid advertising or the, the customer acquisition cost was too high and or the very, very high discounts. And then when those, what I would call artificial prop ups or steroids go away, the, the marketplaces collapse. So you're walking into what I, what I would consider an extremely fragile company and business to start. So why marketplaces? I mean, there's a lot more other straightforward uh, type businesses like service, uh, software as a service or any sort of application capability that would be 
easier to build. But marketplaces is actually a tough nut to crack because you got to get a lot of things right, including network effects. So tell, tell, talk to us about the, the triangulation on a marketplace. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's funny. I think I, I hear the same thing in, in different ways from mm-hmm. VCs that I speak to and from others that the selling into the consumer world, for example, is a lot harder to sell than selling into the business world because mm-hmm. businesses are willing to pay more money for things, right? Yeah. And consumers are normally more individually critical of the services that they're willing to pay for. And so, mm-hmm. and then on top of it, when you're building a knowledge marketplace, to your point, you need to hit a critical mass of supply and demand before things really take off. And so how do you get to that supply and demand critical threshold and before it starts feeding on itself? It's, it's a tough problem. I think that the, the reason I chose it was because I felt like it was a, a market that has over the years been tackled many times in different mm-hmm. ways to varying levels of success. And I think that it's a pain point, the pain point of what I call the subjective question of a question that requires experience, knowledge, and the ability to articulate answers that you can't just get off of a Google, for example. Mm. I think that the market has shown that it's already there. Like the, the, the pain point is there. Many companies try and succeed and try and fail to address the pain point. To me, I think that many of them have missed the mark in different ways. And I think that the way I'm approaching it is gonna be one of those that is bringing the best and avoiding the worst of all of those solutions together, so. Mm, Interesting. And I, 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 I know that you're an engineering leader, but when we think about a startup, you're, there's so many things that need to be engineered. You need to engineer the, the product, the technical details, but there's also a thing about engineering commitments, right? So you need to kind of figure out how do you engin- engineer commitments from your employees? How do you engineer commitments from your, the folks that, that fund you? How do you engineer commitments from the, your contributors and your customers? So when you, when you think about uh, commitments, which is not truly an engineering problem, but be, because you're an engineer, have you thought about it from a systems thinking on how do you engineer commitments? Explain that a little bit more. When you mean commitments, like getting people to do what yes. needs to be done to be exactly. successful? Yeah, okay. in a systematic um, and programmatically way. Right. I think you've got to tackle a problem like that multifaceted in multifaceted ways. People will tend to go out of their way for people that they like or for something that they feel passionate about. And so mm-hmm. you've got to put people, the right people in place that are going to feel passionate about what they're doing. And you've got to have a strong culture in place to where people like working with each other. That's a foundation that I've always felt as an engineer and moving into engineering leadership that if you've nailed those first two, you're 90% of the way there. Um, the last 10% is mostly about logistically getting the noise out of people's way and getting the things that are going to detract from productivity out of people's way. And that's when you, you get better and better at that, the higher up you get in the ranks and you start to realize what's noise and what's not noise. So that's one piece of it. And then making people believe that they have growth potential. People always want to grow their careers. People always want that next step. The good people want to be challenged. If you've nailed the first two 
things of getting the right people into the right jobs that are passionate. You won't have to worry about people that don't want to be challenged. You've already got only people that want to be challenged. And once you nail that piece of it, now it's just your responsibility to challenge them. And so figuring out what is going to challenge each individual person to be the best they can be at their job or at the thing that is most helpful for that aligns with what the company's needs are with the person's growth. Yeah. And then in Philadelphia, we talked, you talked about culture. Are you creating in, 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 in your, your new um, company, uh, a very Philly culture? Is it a very Silicon Valley culture? Is it a very American culture? Is it now in this world of COVID? Are you thinking now about a remote culture? So tell, talk to us about what culture means to you before COVID and now after COVID, because we, culture is easy when, it, when, when folks are co-located like now, given the, this whole distancing. How are you thinking about culture as a new leader? You know, I, I think it's, it's, it's a challenge working in remote teams, especially if it's a team that's used to working in person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've been on teams that were both. I've been on teams that are completely spread out across the country and the world. And I've been on teams that were like, like my current team that's very localized. And the things that make remote teams work well are not necessarily the same things that make local teams work well. And mm-hmm. so figuring out where the synergies are across those two, especially if you've got a team that um, is trying to transition into the remote working type of environment is critical. And, and sometimes people have to uh, stumble into the, themselves. You can't really force feed remote culture into people. They have to get the feel for it themselves and see what works for them and what doesn't work for them. And then you've also got to create um, opportunities for people to socialize or to strategize. You, you, you need to set boundaries. I, I think some of the things that have been interesting to me were as you, we transitioned into these last three months early on, everybody wanted to have a conference call about something. And sometimes they weren't really important issues. They were just, they needed to talk. And then I think, figure out what the right level of interaction is to maintain productivity and maintain personal connection while also not overwhelming people and overloading people is a key aspect of that remote work success. Yeah. And so as we wind down this uh, fascinating uh, discussion, I, I understand that you're launching your MVP uh, this month, actually. is uh, Are you on schedule to, to get it out to the hands of the folks, at least a, a beta or alpha? We are, yeah. We're, I would say, 98% of the MVP or the beta version of the site website is done. I'm planning to, my, myself and my developers are planning to launch it either this week or next week. If you would like to participate, it's going to be www.thesageboard.com. Um, I'm sure Kelvin will put it in the comments somewhere. And we're also on Twitter and Instagram if you want to keep track of us and LinkedIn on there. And we are at the Sage Board there also. So I'm, I'm excited. I, it, it's hard to tell how fast or slowly it's going to grow. It's, it's a startup. So I'm open and ready for either one. So maybe we're going to have to work really hard. Maybe things are going to click. You never know. So. Yeah. And as we wind down this conversation, what's your wish for all the renegades out there who are actually thinking of starting a startup in the middle of a once in a generation pandemic? What's your, what's your wish for the folks there? No, I, I think as um, uh, cliche as it sounds, like don't be afraid to get going. Don't procrastinate. Don't make excuses. Cut out the things that are stopping you from getting, getting yourself off the ground. 
take the next step. And then once you take that step, take the next step, even as small or as little as those steps are, you'll start to create some momentum and some forward motion. And then once you do, you'll be surprised at just how quickly you can get your idea off the ground. So. Wise words. Well, Peter, thank you so much for uh, coming on the pod today. Thanks so much, Kelvin. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Okay.